0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Imagine standing up in front of the world's most powerful people, President Joe Biden, Prime Ministers, the Royal Family, looking at them in the eye and telling them, "Uh, you're not working hard enough. One 24-year-old's done it and now she's speaking with us. G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. Stay listening for this chat with one of the most powerful young voices on climate change in the world. And it really is a podcast for high achievers. We're also going to be speaking with our youngest MP to find out how things are going in Canberra. It's been a few months. It's time to get a bit of a rundown. First, though, are we done with the five-day work week? Hey. in an ideal world, would you have a long weekend every single week? You do four days, you get paid for five, and you have a three-day weekend. On Triple Jack. Happy hump day. I hate when people say that so much. And yeah, I know a heap of you would hate it even more because you work more than five days, maybe you work weekends, don't worry, I hear ya. But for a lot of people, this is an important point of the week. It marks that downward slide into the weekend. Think about this, though. What if today wasn't your hump day because you only had to work four days a week instead of five and you get paid the same amount? For a lot of people, this is going to sound crazy. What? For some others, it might be your situation already because more and more employers are trialling this four-day week. Even here in Australia, are you hanging out for this? Maybe you've heard about it, you're thinking, oh, can't wait. Or if you're already doing it, how does it feel? Let me know, 0439757555. In the meantime, James Pertill explains. While I spent Wednesday getting paid
2: to work to make radio, and engage with my beloved co-workers on microsoft teams and uh, respond to dave marchese's jokes which is in my contract adam laid has been getting paid to do pretty much anything he wants yeah on wednesdays i, I play golf um, play golf in the morning you know like i love surfing and that so if the waves are good i go for a surf but yeah just sort of like I don't know, just chill out. Adam is 25, lives near the beach in Rye, south of Sydney. So, yeah. Wednesday is like my day to do all that crap and you know, take my dog to the vet and yeah, so I really, I really
3: relish it, <laughs> it's,
2: it's a sacred day. <laughs> yeah, and, and what does your girlfriend say? Is she, is she really envious of obviously, Yeah, so? <laughs> she gets pretty pissed off. <laughs> no, okay. she's, she's, she's really happy for me, but yeah, like it is awkward. Because, you know, she gets slammed at her job. She works at quite a small agency. She's like strict, eight to five. Why do so many of us go to work five days a week, Monday to Friday? Who made that the default option? I'd never really wondered this. It's been like that forever, since before my parents were born. But now the five-day week may be on the way out. Adam is one of a few hundred Australians taking part in a global experiment to try something else. What's the point of having heaps of money if you can't like live your life? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's called the four day week. Basically, you work for four days, but get paid for five. Sounds pretty good, right? But there's a catch. You're expected to get as much done in those four days as you would have previously managed in a full week.
0: The four day week for us is owned by everybody. So it's something that we all want, including myself.
2: That's Kath Blackham, Adam's boss at Versa, a Melbourne digital marketing company.
0: So we all have to work to make it work. And so mm. that means that if our productivity drops and we can't make money, then obviously we're not gonna be able to do the four day week. But just all the research and everything that we've seen over the last you know, four or five years, has shown us that we can be just as productive over 30 hours as we can, particularly now that
2: we're at home. Kath is something of a pioneer of the four-day week in Australia. Versa trialled the idea way back in 2018 when really no one else was doing it. Back then, workers did four longer days rather than the five normal ones, and profit and productivity soared. And on top of that, the staff were happier and healthier so
0: there's a lot of downtime these days from people getting sick people having mental health issues and companies are trying to do anything they can because they've realised that actually the actual cost of business is really high now you know if you've got a full-on job you do it for Monday Tuesday and Wednesday is a Ooh. kind of as a release valve and then you go at it again for Thursday Friday it's like Ooh. two little weeks
2: since Versus 2018 trial other companies have got on board a big study in Iceland with thousands of workers across several years found that productivity actually increased with shorter hours governments from Spain to Japan to Scotland to New Zealand are either explicitly recommending the idea to employers or they're running their own studies and this year a global trial of the four-day week commenced with 171 companies taking part 20 of them are in Australia, and they started just last month.
4: The first month, we're just going to be Wednesdays, and then from my perspective, I'd like to trial a Monday, I'd like to trial a Friday, I'd like to trial everyone doing different days, I'd like to trial a half-day Wednesday, half-day Friday, Hmm. all the variations. That's what I think is so great about the pilot. We basically want to collect data.
2: That's Nick Cantor, he's the co-founder of another Melbourne marketing company, The Walk Agency and they're taking part in that global trial. Experts at universities around the world will be scrutinising the productivity of staff from the companies that are taking part. All this to answer one question. Can a four-day week be as productive as five days? I think
4: in six months' time, with the help of academics around the world and four-day week experts and other organisations. Uh, and inspiration that they get. We should be in six months time, really well practiced at this. And I expect the impact on the business to be positive, a net positive rather than a net drain.
2: This global trial is being closely watched. Results are due in 2023. And if they conclusively show that workers can get just as much done in four days, maybe your next job will be four days a week. Maybe we'll all be asking our bosses for a Wednesday off soon. Adam's definitely keen for that to happen because everyone is working five-day weeks. He's the only non-retiree at the golf club on a weekday. and It's kind of lonely. I find like, I'm the only one of my mates who has a Wednesday off. So for the most part, I don't really have that much to do. (laughs) But yeah, hopefully more of my mates get the four-day work week and we
5: can uh, can feel more comfortable going (laughs) surfing and stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Hack on Triple J.
1: James Fertile with that story. And, yeah, we thank James for laughing at my jokes, as is required to by law. Um, We're getting so many messages through on this one, so many. Someone says, I don't see much point in a four-day week if I'm working all night and weekends anyway to keep up with ridiculous deadlines made by people who can't grasp the scale and complexity of the task. Another person says... Who does the four-day work week apply to, though? Because I'm a tradesman and I already work six days and long hours. Somebody else says, we just started doing this and so bloody good. Tomorrow is Friday. It's unreal. I've got someone on the line as well. Lockie, what's your experience? You work in construction, right?
4: Yeah, I do. Um, so, like, I'm an electrician and we've actually spoken about this a lot. We work a 40-hour week. We do five, eight-hour days. Um, and there's a general consensus amongst a lot of the younger crew. Why don't we just do four tens and have a three-day weekend sort of every week? Or we do like four tens and a rotating roster with no overtime, and then there's more opportunity for more people to be employed. So
1: a lot of the younger people are like, yeah, let's do that. And I mean, some some people already do that, right? And we're hearing from a heap of those on the text line now. What are the bosses thinking, though?
4: Well, Still a
1: bit of convincing?
4: You, well, see, <laughs> construction, obviously, productivity uh, varies from full on to, you know, hopping straight on the brakes, um, exhibit A being COVID-19. So it's hard for the bosses to scope how much work yeah they'll actually have. Yeah. Um, so that they can't really obviously give us like the go-ahead to do anything like that, but it's still an idea and yeah, I'm all for it.
1: totally, lucky. and it's good to hear those conversations are being had. Thanks so much for calling in and sharing your experiences. I want to pick someone's brains about this, though, someone who's looked into this quite a lot. Dr. Mark Dean from the Australia Institute is with us. Hey, Mark, thanks for jumping on Hack.
3: Hey, thanks for having me, Dave.
1: How have we ended up here? Because we haven't always worked five days a week, have we? No, we haven't.
3: We've We've definitely worked uh, longer weeks, uh, longer hours. And, um, as Lockie mentioned, you know, sometimes it's, it's still six days for a lot of workers. Um, but I, f- I find that interesting as well that, um, you know, we had a, we had a building tradee call in about the, the, the hours that they work. And it's, it's interesting to note that in history, uh, the first place to get a reduced, uh, working week and in the industry, which was construction, was in Melbourne uh, nearly uh, 150 years ago. And um, that's where it started in Australia. So we were the first place here in Melbourne, where I am, to, um, to get shorter working weeks for workers because they worked together to, to um, uh, demand it. And, um, and that's something that we can do again.
1: Interesting. So if we talk about moving to four-day weeks, how would it work? Are there a heap of different models that experts have looked at?
3: Yeah, there certainly are, Dave. Like, um, so, for example, uh, a researcher at Sydney Uni, Troy Henderson, has come up with a bunch of different models um, previously. And uh, you know, we, could, we could look at compressed hours in a shorter working week. So that's the same number of hours we work today, but you know, in a shorter time period, say Monday to Thursday. We could do that uh, compressed hours model in a flexible working week. So choose your days you work but still do 38 hours. We could reduce the hours work with reduced pay, so that's less pay for less hours work, in a shorter week as well. Reduced hours without reduced pay, uh, so the same pay for less hours, and that's worked in a shorter working week as well. And another one is reduced hours without reduced pay, um, so the same pay for less hours worked across chosen days. Uh, John Quiggan at the University of Queensland come up with an idea that you know a, a first phase would be, say, a shift to a nine-day week, Uh, with no reduction in hours, um, and you get an extra 50 minutes per day, that works out to be. And then phase two, a shift to a nine-day week with reduced hours, uh, which basically leaves you with a 32-hour week. So, you know, all of these models could potentially apply in some context, but I think that the most applicable one for making life better for workers and increasing our leisure time, which is ultimately the goal, you know, we want more free time. We would either reduce uh, hours without reduced pay in a shorter week, say a four-day week, or we would reduce hours without reduced pay across a working week that's chosen by the worker uh, most likely in negotiation with their employer but ultimately arriving at a at a uh, place where both the employee and the employer agree that okay you're going to work shorter hours get the same pay and you're going to choose your hours that works for you and works for the company
1: well yeah i mean people wouldn't be too keen to lose money i wouldn't think what kind of impact no. would it have on the economy do you reckon
3: it would have an enormously positive impact on the economy, and that's that's the point. Is that there are plenty of businesses that will be resistant to this idea, but we need to we need to communicate to them that this is going to be good for your business as well. If you've got more employees on the books uh, and you've got more people spending money in the economy, it's a win-win. And so, particularly if you've got more people on your books and they're working, you know, uh, a, a shifts-based you know, um, thing, you know, number of days, maybe, you know, you work uh, Monday to Thursday or you work, say, Friday to, to Tuesday or something like that, depending on what the worker has negotiated with their employee. I mean, it won't work for everyone, but that's how you negotiate. And, you know, unions would come in as well to, to uh, negotiate on behalf of workers. But ultimately, if you've got more people working less hours across, uh, you know, with, with more employees in a, in, a, in a workplace, you're reducing the stress on the individual workers. Uh, less chance of work-related illness and injury. Uh, you know, if someone's called in sick, you know that you can, you can um, have them uh, easily uh, replaced on a shift if it's, if it's urgent. Um, you know, there's all of these advantages and, and at the end of the day, workers get more free time to spend their money.
1: Very interesting. Mark Dean from the Australia Institute, really appreciate your insight on that. You're doing the research and we love to hear it. Yeah, thanks, Dave. And we're hearing so many comments on the text line. Someone says, I'm a paramedic. I work 52 hours in four days and then get four days off. I love it. And another person, Dustin from the Sunshine Coast, says, I'm an employer in a small mechanical workshop on the sunny coast and have my workers on nine-day fortnights. so every second Friday is a day off. As, as a young person, I understand how important time off is and always hated that as a mechanic, short weeks were never an option. Well, Dustin's given his workers something. Look, it's not going to work for everyone maybe, but... Definitely something experts say we should be exploring. Pack.
5: This is our warrior cry to the world. We are not drowning. We are fighting. On Triple J. Hey,
1: most 24-year-olds have a fair bit going on in their lives. Getting through work, maybe trying to kickstart a career, keep on top of social commitments. It ain't easy, right? But what about saving the world from a climate catastrophe? Because that's what young, one young Samoan has committed her life to. Brianna Fruin has been thinking about climate change since she was a kid, growing up in the Pacific. You can't ignore it there. Now she's committed to getting young people around the world to fight for climate action. She's won a heap of international awards and she's going to join celebrities like Rosalia, Mariah Carey at a global conference in New York later this month. Brianna is a busy woman and so we're so stoked that she had time to come and chat with us. Brianna Fruin, welcome to Hack.
5: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
1: You were at the big COP26 climate summit in Glasgow last year and your address moved a lot of people as you spoke directly to world leaders let's just have a little bit of a listen to what you said
5: if you're here today you know what climate change is doing to us you don't need my pain or my tears to know that we're in a crisis the real question is whether you have the political will to do the right thing
1: what did that feel like to look out and hear yourself speak such powerful words to the US president, the British royal family, the most powerful people in the world. must have been a crazy experience.
5: Yes, I definitely felt, um, funny enough, very still in in that moment because um, I was told something when I was younger that served me well throughout my life, is that no one can tell your story better than you. And so I had confidence in reading what I had reflected on because I truly believed it because it was my story.
1: Brianna, you're Samoan, an Mm -hmm. island nation heavily impacted by climate change. Growing up, how did you learn about what was happening to the world around you?
5: I learned about it in primary school, so what climate change was. I had seen subtle differences in the way that my fish market looked like, the way that my village looked. I I didn't really know it was climate change. And then I learned about it in school and just knew I had to do something just as a a citizen of Samoa, but also a citizen of the, the planet we share.
1: What are the real impacts of climate change in the communities that, you know, you call home. Well, how serious is the situation in Samoa?
5: It's very serious in the islands, um, from drought to floods, to extreme weather patterns where my mom experienced her first cyclone at 19 and a nine year old today would have experienced maybe seven cyclones in her lifetime. And so, or in their lifetime. So we can see that something is definitely changing and it's an everyday lived reality
1: because you started so young, you've mm-hmm. actually been in this space for a long time, like first in, in the Pacific, but now you're recognised all around the world. What does that feel like to be invited to all of these huge events, big events in New York City, at huge cities so far removed from where you come from?
5: I'm just so proud that the Pacific is being recognised. Uh, it's not lost on me the fact that I come from a small island that we don't have a mic a lot of the times, like people don't really know what's happening in the small islands. They don't really look to us. And now we can finally be seen as these resilient people who are fighting the climate crisis. And so as a Samoan or as a a small island girl, like I'm really not special, I think.
1: Well, I wanted to ask about that. Do you think that young people in the Pacific Islands are more engaged on this issue of climate change than other young people in other parts of the world, like Australia, for instance?
5: I think we are more like physically engaged with it because we have to physically adapt to the climate crisis. There are actually a lot of people in the islands that live with climate change and are showing climate resilience that don't actually know it's climate change, that have never heard those two words together. It's just a lived reality for them. Like they're not putting the two and two crisis together. But I've seen in the past few years, I mean, we've seen it with the strikes, that there are more and more young people who are interested in fighting for climate justice.
1: You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with climate activist, warrior Brianna Fruin. Brianna, I wanted to ask you, in Australia, climate's been a big political debate for decades. For a long time, politicians were fighting over whether it was even happening. Now Australia's put some plans in place, aiming to cut emissions by 43% by 2030, getting to net zero by 2050. What do you think of those pledges by the Australian government?
5: I think that, first of all, we any small win is, is still a win, but we need big wins at these point at this point. We need higher ambition. We need to keep pushing and I think that's the power of people is that when politicians and governments come and say, This is our plan, it's the power of, of the masses to say we need a better plan. We 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 still need to keep pushing for faster ambitions and, and saying something like the twenty fifty targets, let's push that forward. Um, closer to us and and make that 2030.
1: We know Australia takes its relationship with the Pacific really seriously. We always hear Mm. that from our political leaders, our Prime Minister. Um, You know, we are a a Pacific neighbour. We want to be a responsible neighbour. How do young people in the Pacific view Australia?
5: It's a mixed bag. It really depends. Some people will see Australia as a a good neighbour and some people will see it as a bad neighbour. I think it just depends on who you meet with and also acknowledging that The Pacific is such a vast place that you'll find a a very large range of of beliefs and um, opinions on what the Australian government is.
1: And do you think young people are thinking about this very differently? Like for older people maybe... Talking about climate change is really overwhelming, but for younger people, we know that we have to live with this and we will be living this for mm. the rest of our lives.
5: Yes, young people are definitely the energy I think we we need in, in pushing the needle forward. Um, you know, there's a saying in the islands that... A very strong canoe is um, one that has an elder to steer, that has like all the institutional and wiz- the wisdom to be able to steer us in the right direction when we're navigating. But that canoe is not going anywhere without the young people of the village that are powering it through. And they're actually the ones that sit in the front. And so I believe that it's our young people that know we're in a crisis, that will have to live with the consequences and that will be the ones that push our global canoe forward.
1: Brianna, if you could jump ahead in time, let's say 20 years, you're not 24 year old, you're 44 <laughs> years old, looking back on your life, what are you hoping that you would have been able to achieve?
5: You know, my end goal is to no longer be a climate uh, to no longer be a climate activist. I um I wish for a world where we don't need young people to be activists anymore, that we live in a world where we can just be kids and we can just be young people who aren't concerned about the literal end of the world. And so in the next 20 years, if I can think of like a big picture goal would be me doing not this work, that this work is done,
1: (laughs) And what would you do if you weren't doing this work? I don't
5: know, maybe go back home, start a farm, maybe like um, live on a beach, you know. I, I, it's very hard for me to live. It was very selfless of me to leave my island. It's a beautiful island and I left my island to save my island. And so hopefully we can make sure that all islands are safe and I can return back home and, and not have to worry about the climate crisis. That's the dream.
1: I'm sure that's what everyone listening is feeling as well. Look, you're an extraordinary person, such a passionate advocate, Pacific climate warrior, activist, advocate Brianna Fruin. Good luck on your journey and thank you so much for speaking with us on Hack.
5: Oh, thank you so much. Hack,
1: Hack. on Triple J. And Brianna will be speaking at the big Global Citizen Festival in New York later this month and hey, we've just launched a new podcast that's covering these very issues, climate change from a new perspective. It's called Who's Gonna Save Us, hosted by our very own Joe Lauder, and you can grab it now on the Triple J app or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: Hack, I want to ensure that young people are acknowledged and considered when decisions about their futures are being made. On Triple J.
1: You know, it's been more than three months since the federal election and a bit has happened in that time. We're also still getting to know all the main players, the new faces representing us in Canberra. And one of those made her first speech in Parliament yesterday. Labor Senator for WA, Fatima Payman, is a few things. At 27, she's our youngest MP. She's also Australia's first hijab-wearing member of Parliament. And she's got a lot that she wants to achieve.
6: I stand before you tonight as a young woman, as a West Australian, as a Muslim devout to her faith, proud of her heritage and grateful to this beautiful country.
1: Fatima Payman is with us now. G'day, Senator. Welcome to Hack.
6: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Look, I want to ask you, when you first got involved in politics, did you think, oh, I'm going to get there, I want to be in federal parliament, or is this just something that's ended up happening? (laughs)
6: Look, I'm going to be super blunt. Like, (laughs) I had no idea this was going to happen. I really stumbled upon it, but, you know, I think the activism of... um, the young people around me and when I got involved um, it was just my, I just felt like it was my calling and it just, drove me to where I am today.
1: Oh, well, you're there and, you know, at such a young age, it's good to see, you know, young people in the parliament making these decisions and now you're a senator, you made your maiden speech yesterday. That's a big moment for politicians. Like, you'll often see when a politician gets a big promotion or they retire, they'll show those first words that they spoke in parliament and reflect on their careers from that point. Did you feel heaps of pressure making the speech about what you'd include, what you'd talk about?
6: Yeah, you have no idea. I feel like I had like five different drafts that I went through and hours and hours of worse, just making sure. Worse
1: than a high school assignment, do oh, you, you reckon? I have no idea. I was like,
6: man, this is PTSD. It's crazy. Um, but no, just the amount of hours you put in to make sure that you are you have the right balance of acknowledging those who are important to you in your life and on your journey, a bit about your story, but also a bit about what drove you to where you are and also, you know, what I hope to achieve. And I think, you know, that balance in in a space of like twenty five minutes because I didn't want to like bore everyone because you know senate senate days can be quite long and the last thing you want to you know be listening to is somebody just go on about their life story for like an hour yeah um but no it was it was such a humbling moment you know to just stand there in front of everyone and share a, a part of me a piece of me um you know and Honestly, it was was really this incredible momentous occasion.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Look, I mentioned earlier, you are the first hijab-wearing MP in our federal parliament and in your speech yesterday, you said this...
6: Whilst at times, and even in this very chamber, xenophobia has raised its ugly head. Fear-mongering and divisive sentiments have been shared about our immigrant population. But the simple truth remains that as a nation, we need a humanistic and optimistic approach.
1: Senator, I'm wondering, is it hard standing in a room where you know that in the past, a lot of hurtful, divisive things have been said? And does it feel isolating to be described all the time as the first?
6: (sighs) Um, It's not. I mean, I entered this chamber with an open mind, knowing that whatever's happened in the past, there's a reason why I'm here today and I want to do my best in being the best representative I can be in the next six years, I I serve as a senator. Um, It's not isolating because, you know, everyone is generous with their time, that there is that sense of camaraderie and support that I receive from my Labour colleagues. Um, But, you know, I think what I've experienced, you know, leading up to where I am today has been hard. There's been some hard truths, some you know really difficult moments but you just use that to propel you into making society a better place for everyone cuz I'm sure I'm not alone um, in feeling isolated sometimes.
1: Well, you said you did want to make sure young people's voices are heard because you know it's rare for young people to have a platform like this, to be in the federal parliament. And you talked about things like housing, mental health, education, they're going to be a big focus for you. We know climate change is a big issue as well. And we just heard from climate activist, um, Brianna Fruin from Samoa saying, Australia needs to do more, needs to step up. You're part of the government now. Are you going to be pushing for more action on climate
6: change? 100%. Look, it's an ambitious target that Labor is putting forward and we're currently actually debating it in the Senate and it's so wonderful to see that a a topic that's so passionate to my heart, like we're finally taking action on climate change, you know, after a decade of denial, delay and dysfunction, we're finally, you know, as Brianna said, it is young people who are the energy and powerhouses of drivers like this. And when I was young Labor president last year, the passion was there, the activism, the drive, everyone was just wanting to see um, some level of action, some level of, you know, um, the government taking things seriously. And so Labor's come in, you know, reducing emissions by 43% by 2030. That keeps us on track for net zero by 2050. And it's important to have that target, to have a vision and be like, we are going to be working um, towards this. So I'm so excited.
1: Well, look, Senator, there's going to be people who, are th- who who will be thinking, oh, we need to do more. And we're hearing some politicians already saying that and calling for the government to do more. You are part of the government. I'm guessing that we're going to be checking in with you quite a bit over the next few years. So it was really nice to meet you, Labor Senator Fatima Payman. A lot of hard work ahead. I'm sure we'll be speaking to you a bit. Thanks for coming on Hack.
6: Thrilled. Thank you so much. Hack
1: on Triple Jack. Big thanks again to Senator Fatima Payman and all of our guests. A lot of messages that we got regarding all of the big stories, including the four-day workweek one. And I know so many of you are ready for that. You're like, when's that happening? That's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.